Nat, hi. Hi. <laughs> um, we had a podcast episode together, which I loved. We did. It was so fun. Yeah. And then after that, Spitfire thought it'd be a good idea that you come on and we do a podcast together. But yeah, this is fun. I'm really excited about this season. The guests we got to talk to, they're all different and they're, and they're all colorful artists in their own way. Yeah. And as a composer, chatting to other composers, I always, I'm so fascinated by people's way into the industry and their process and how they creatively approach their work and what I can learn from them. So it's, for me, it's been just such a kind of enlightening, kind of enriching experience that I've really enjoyed. So thank you for asking me. It's been wonderful to, to have you on and joining me. Well, let's talk about Carter, our first guest. Yeah, great. I was admittedly kind of waxing on a little heavy introducing him in the beginning <laughs> of this episode. But I realized in doing this that Carter Burwell has been scoring for over four decades. That is a long time. Yeah, it is. And it's, he's such a kind of calm and kind soul. And I, I'm such a huge fan of the Coen Brothers work that, you know, Barton Fink was actually one of my films that I watched at film school that I had to study. So it was, it was amazing all these years later to be discussing it with Carter. Well, it's so, it's so fun too, because for me, I get to go back and watch all these films and revisit all these scores and, and in it with a different ear and a different eye to it. And that's always the exciting part for me. So in the course of this, I went back over most of the Coen Brothers films and he's done pretty much all of them. So mm -hmm. I just see him as a great composer of kind of dark, anxious drama. I think that's his lane yes. in, in the way I listen to it. But also, then I go back and listen to those wonderful Ballad of Buster Scruggs themes and True Grit themes that recall the old American West, which I think he does so well too. Mm -hmm. And um, so he, he, he can do anything. Yeah, very versatile composer. And, and I, got, I loved speaking to him about the, the space that he likes to write and, you know, that you can be sort of tidying your house and like almost meditatively coming up with ideas and responding and sort of delineating your time. He just seems like someone who's not put upon or sort of a slave to what he does either. Like he has a really good work-life balance. So I took a lot from that. Another thing that I thought was really cool is that we got a couple of exclusive themes from him to include in the episode, which... Yeah, which, you cannot find them anywhere. Yeah. I mean, really hard to find and or just flat out unavailable or unreleased. And Carter was kind enough to give us a couple, including the title theme from Fear, which is one of his favorites, mm -hmm. and a couple of Fargo themes that you can't readily hear. So, And also, I think... What I love about talking with him, too, is that he's kind of funny in a sneaky, sly way. <laughs> he has a great sense of humor. He does. Yeah. And it's, it was a lot of fun to get to talk to somebody that has such a catalog of music behind him. So I guess without further ado, we'll present Carter Burwell. Perfect. Our first guest. Thank you. 
the first piece of music you hear by Carter Burwell in his Oscar-nominated score for Banshees of Sharon, rests on the telling expressions of its two antagonists. Parik, played by Colin Farrell, has just been ignored off the seaside doorstep of his supposed friend Colm, played by Brendan Gleeson. It seems a ritual thing, one pal calling on another to see if he wants to grab a pint, albeit perhaps a little early in the day. But as Parik halts on his retreat back up the hill, turning his head to reveal a face of concern that acknowledges his spurning, Burwell's tuned percussion, highlighted by Indonesian gamelan, chimes in, signaling to us that the ritual has been thrown off track. With one troubled glance, accompanied by tempered application of a few notes, a tone of a movie is established, and Burwell's score has entered the frame as a character in its own right, one that will follow all of Porrick's subsequent miscues, almost shaking its head alongside them. Carter Burwell's scores have helped tell the stories of film for over four decades of cinema. So his themes can escort a viewer anywhere a filmmaker's heart desires. Yet his unmistakable style coaxes the most out of shadowy dramas, stoking the embers of comedic irony. This is most evident in his exclusive scoring for all of the Coen Brothers' films. Save Oscar Isaac's folk turn to the music of T-Bone Burnett and Oscar Mumford on the Inside Lewin Davis soundtrack, one which I must admit I fancy quite a lot. One of the invaluable attributes Burwell brings to bear on his work, and one that makes him irreplaceable to directors of human complexity like the Coens and Martin McDonough and Todd Haynes, is his both innate and informed sensitivity to what's implicit. His music casts a shadow of consequence behind all of a film's players. But his scores also reveal a historical study of time and place, in the models of their instrumentation and in voices that recall pedestrian verses in colloquial spirit. In his searching through the cultural texts and records of the period and place of a film setting, Burwell hopes to find a postcard wedged between the back cover, where in its scribbling, some secret signpost provides direction. Often fatalistic and commonly introduced through strings and woodwinds in a pitch and progression that identify their writer, Themes layer up as if to endure the mounting tensions of the characters they follow. But they will also echo through fields and canyons, through woods and over hills, and into the humble quarters that house conflict. His stripped orchestral swells are signatures on their film reels. Whether or not you want to label it a style, their tragic comedic tones will point you in the direction the story is about to go. When Carter Burwell speaks about his craft, his erudition and holistic understanding of film is clear, and no doubt reassuring to those at the helm of the films he scores, that the tones and environments of their imagined worlds will be vivified by the music. So cinephiles and score lovers, 
What you're getting here is an intimate telling from a venerated steward of the craft, whose attention to the nuances of the medium will deepen your appreciation for it. We present Carter Burwell. was interested in like your process because I always think when I think of a score that you've created I think of these kind of long lines and very kind of definite texture that makes it sound like your style um but do you find do you kind of get um instrumentalists that you're really fond of to kind of come in and play a line for you or are you finding do you kind of sit down at the piano or kind of how do you how do you come up with your melody lines when you're working so I typically come up with my uh, my melody and harmony uh, sitting at the piano, and uh, that's just the instrument that I'm most comfortable with. And and honestly, just psychologically, when I sit at the piano, it doesn't feel like work. It's just you know when I have to turn something on, then it feels like work. If I have to you know turn on a power switch, then I, I feel like I'm gone to work. But when I'm at the piano, I'm um, I can eat. You know, extemporize, and also it takes me away from the film. I'm not watching the film. I'm sitting in my living room, and also for some reason that distance um, helps me. I'm not scoring a scene. I'm scoring instead my concept of the film, which I ha hold in my mind. My approach isn't really so much to score scenes or to amplify the action that you're seeing on screen. And um, if anything, my approach is sort of the opposite, which is to try to think, I watch the film, talk about it with the director, but then I go off and try to think of what is not there that I think that I could add. And, um, and that's usually more on a conceptual level. You know, I think, well, it's missing this aspect of the story isn't really clear, or I could add a subtextual element that, you know, um, that would make it a richer experience. Um, so in order to achieve that, it really helps me to get away from the film and just go and sit and think and free associate at the, at the piano. So that's where I um, develop those ideas. But you're quite right that, of course, in the end, if it's going to be performed on a completely different instrument or a set of instruments, then um, a lot of what I'm playing at the piano, I'm imagining in my mind what it's going to be, if, like any composer, when, when it's transferred to, um, to the intended instruments. But I don't really, I'm not really hearing that until I yeah, put up samples or any, some kind of sound that is intended to imitate the final instrumentation. And of course, that's, these days, directors expect that. No, no, I don't think anyone today with the possible exception of John Williams, sits at a piano and, you know, um, plays the piano for their, their director and say, now imagine this with a symphony orchestra. Um, these days you are, you know, expected to deliver something that is a, a mock-up, a sketch of the final instrumentation. It's, it's such a shame, though, because 
you know, very often if you have got something that's really strong and stand out, it will hold up on, you know, you can play a theme on a piano and it's like, that's kind of a proof that it's good. It's like you don't need loads of wacky sounds. It's like you've got a good theme <laughs> that sticks in your head. But um, I feel like as we move away from the piano and start getting bogged down in making something sound really good, programming it all up, it's it loses something sometimes, I feel, but... Well, it's true, and it is in the end. It is does have a lot to do with trust. I mean, Steven Spielberg trusts John Williams, and uh, and honestly, with the Coen Brothers, who I've worked with for a really long time, I think if I sat down and plinked it out on the piano, uh, by and large, they would they would trust that it was going to um, work in the end. Um, but another aspect, another downside to the working on mockups, in my opinion, is that if you are in the end going to record with uh, with real players, which is, you know, I'm lucky to be able to do that most of the time, um, then my time spent on that mock-up is kind of wasted time, right? I've, uh, you know, if I'm in there, like, playing with MIDI continuous controllers to make it all sound really good, um, but then that information is all lost when I put it on the page, my time could have been better spent, frankly, you know, on, um, on real orchestration. I'm curious to know, Carter, your overall impression of how the samples have evolved or come to complement scoring more? <laughs> sure. Uh, when I started doing this, writing music for films, it was at the very beginning of uh, sampling as a technology. Uh, I was working with a Synclavier, which was an early digital um, synth, but it had a totally separate sampling side. I think it was just, you know, monophonic. It was the most basic thing, but it was, um, um, that whole idea was relatively new to record a sound and then play it back so that it followed the, the pitch of the keys on the keyboard. Um, and then pretty soon after that, I think even working on the first film I did, uh, which was Blood Simple, the emulator was around. So that was one of the very first sample instruments that where you could actually do polyphonic um, playback of samples and um, you were definitely locked into whatever they happened to have and <laughs> in terms of sounds and it wasn't much at that point that would have been like 1983 um, but you know string sounds basically things like that um, Synclavier was a little bit more interesting because yeah you could record your own sounds in, and um, and I did enjoy uh, doing that, just taking like wine glass or something like that and uh, um, playing around with it. Back at that time, I also was working with tape, taking tapes and cutting them, doing tape loops and, you know, analog uh, version of, of sampling. And then I guess there were things like the Giga Studio came along. You know, that was basically just a PC that you could um, put sample libraries into and had a MIDI interface on it. And at that point, yeah, I did a lot of my own sampling because I wanted to get sounds that are very hard to capture well in a recording studio so like for instance in the world of um, percussionist bowing things you know bowing i remember doing a sample 
session where I had percussionists bowing like metal chairs and, you know, anything that was around, you know, buckets or and striking them. Um, because it, one of the things that I really liked with sampling was that you could take something that when you hear it played once, you say, that's a noise. But when you hear it played repeatedly and give it some, uh, in particular, like pitch structure, um, then you it becomes a musical instrument. Uh, that's sort of true of anything, right? You take a, a noise and as long as you can give it some pitch and give it some structure and time, it, now, now it's music. So um, that was one of the things that I liked um, sampling for and, and used it for quite a lot. Um, and this would be more like in the 80s and 90s, I guess. And that was just when commercial sample libraries were sort of starting to become available, where you really could get them. And they came from, in my personal experience, they came from two directions. There were people sampling traditional instruments for um, for the use of more traditional musicians. Uh, so those would be string libraries, you know, guitars, uh, woodwinds, what have you, percussion. Um, the things that work the best right from the start, of course, and this is the reason why the you know, um, drum machines uh, were some of the first successful samples, were things where you just strike it and the sound continues, right? Percussion. So piano and drums always work extremely well because you're really not losing anything from sampling it. It's, it, you know, it works on the keyboard. Um, it's all just about how you hit the note in the first you know, millisecond and, um, and everything else. There's not a whole lot that you can do. Other types of instruments, of course, to this day don't sample well, like, you know, saxophones and, uh, you know, violin. Anything that where you actually are interacting with the note, you know, moment by moment over time, it's a lot harder to control with the keyboard and a lot harder to, um, to sample well, so harder to get the feeling into it. So drum machines, pianos always work extremely well. And, um, and then as a sample, you know, commercial libraries became more and more varied. I guess I found myself doing less and less sampling myself that, that no matter what strange thing I thought of, I could usually find it out there. You know, I, I'm particularly drawn to, uh, tuned percussion as a, as a composer and, um, and it was great dealing with certain intractable instruments like gamelan. It was great to be able to sample them and um, control the pitch in a way that you can't do when you with these you know, idiophones. Um, but then eventually there were so many gamelan libraries out there and, and things. I just didn't find that I needed to do very much sampling. And so it's been years now, frankly, since, the, since I did any kind of um, sampling on my own. relationship with the Coen brothers where you've just got this huge like dialogue with them because of such you know they trust you so much you must have built it's so extraordinary I can't imagine what that's like to have such a long-standing artistic collaboration that you have got and and it's and the work you've created with them in those soundtracks for me like when I um when I applied to film school as a composer many years ago they they said that we'd like you to watch Barton Fink and we want you to come in and discuss this in your interview. 
and and give us your thoughts about the score and I remember watching Barton Fink and making notes and watching it again and and I was just I just loved your score for that movie and yeah Fargo and then I watched more and more Coen Brothers films and I've just always enjoyed and been surprised and delighted by what you've you've done with them. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I've been, yeah, needless to say, very fortunate uh, about that relationship, right? Because we just sort of randomly found each other. Their first film is my first film. And um, I, I could have had a completely different life, you know, if, uh, if not for that. Um, and fortunate also that they, of course, turn out to be brilliant and that they also try not to repeat themselves. Um, and those are all rare things, uh, especially we live in a world today of franchises and sequels. And, you know, I'm very fortunate to be uh, living in a different time and with filmmakers who really were trying to, like, do different things. So we tried really hard not to repeat ourselves even with regard to, like, you know, we've d they've done a few things that you could classify as Westerns, for instance. Like, even Raising Arizona, in a sense, is a Western, but then True Grit and... Um, no Country for Old Men and Oh Brother Where Art Thou um, and then Ballad of Buster Scruggs. But we've tried in each of those, we've tried really hard, both like the cinematography, not to repeat it, but also like the music. If we've already done this, we've already done that. What are we going to do now? And we do think very hard about how um, to find a way in that's not something we've done before. And, um, and that's great because with regard to what I was saying before, that each of those new areas shows that I'm capable of doing something else. But also, I'll also say this. One of the great pleasures for me in this work is, um, is research and learning new things, you know, learning new instruments or new idioms, uh, new approaches to instrumentation, orchestration, and, uh, or even notation. And, you know, I, I love that, the opportunity to do something I haven't done before. is, uh, And film composers get that. It's nice because you kind of like, you know, you put on a new hat, hat for each film um, and um, you get to learn so many things, uh, which it wouldn't necessarily happen in even in the concert world. Because um, no one would say, yeah, we want a banjo and a you know, yodeler and whatever. Um, but with the, with the idea of the yodeling, was that something that you came up with or like in Raising Arizona? Um, was that something that was that track something that they came to the table with? Or? That was actually something that Joel, I mean, it could have been both of them, but Joel's the one who told me that he'd been listening to this Pete Seeger record while editing or maybe while prepping the film. But anyway, he'd been, um, yeah, listening to this Pete Seeger record that I didn't know. And, and Joel and Ethan both, they grew up with folk music. I mean, you can tell that that's um, in their blood, um, uh, American folk music in particular. But um, yeah, so they'd been listening to this Pete Seeger piece that is an amalgam of different things. I think Seeger kind of used it as a warm-up thing. So it had a, uh, yeah, it had that little bit of Beethoven's Ninth. It had um, some, I think there's a little bit of a Russian folk tune. There was the big yodel bit, which is from, he got it from the Sons of the Pioneers, uh, Roy Rogers band. And so... And it was, it's so great. So yeah, we, we all loved it. But then we also want to try to give credit where it should go. So we actually went back and did find that uh, that tune called um, Way Out There. And and they credited it to being a, a public domain cowboy song. So kind of the trail went cold. And in the end, we don't know who the first person was to yodel that melody. Um, but that's that's where we got it from.
there's a certain kookiness to that movie that I think the yodeling is is right in line with. Is that what the yodeling you felt brought out? It kind of resonated with that wackiness and that that sort of oddity of that that film. Well, that's definitely true. It gives you know it's. I mean, one of the things I think all film composers look for is uh, is color. Um, if you can make somehow your film sound different than everything else, I just think that's always fantastic. Uh, it's it, a lot easier said than done. But if you can find something that you know where now it's indelible and you know everyone will always think of your film when they hear it, um, and so it it has that. Uh, it also had, I think, for. For Joel, there was something about the the yodeling that just spoke of freedom. And when I remember when we were trying to get, we went through a couple of yodelers uh, doing the recording. Because the first yodeler, well, we were all dealing with whatever musicians we knew. This was at the very beginning of our careers. And like the the banjo player on Raising Arizona was the Coen Brothers optometrist. Like, and I knew from um, a band I played with a, a, a Polish guy who could yodel. So we brought in. Uh, Suave and his yodeling just always sounded Eastern European. <laughs> and Joel Nathan was saying, oh, imagine you're on your horse and you're riding across the prairie. And I don't think Suave knew what a prairie was, honestly, I think. So we ended we, in the end, found a guy who was actually from like Oklahoma and um, and did the yodeling. But, the, but I think that in our efforts to like, you know, inspire our yodelers that we always said it's about freedom. You're like, uh, you know, and it, the movie takes place today, but the idea was that Nicolas Cage's character imagines himself to be an outlaw of, like, from the late 1800s. Like, you know, that time when the, the frontier was, you could do what you wanted. It was a, uh, it was a noble thing to be an outlaw, right? And, um, and that right there is part of the kookiness of Raising Arizona is that, that idea. It's never stated, but it's behind the writing is the idea that it's actually a Western. It's got all the same colorful language that a Zane Grey Western would have. And, um, and even those people are living in trailers and, you know, and whatever, that their motivations and their personalities are those of the Old West. And that's also kind of where the, the yodel comes from. It takes you back in time in a way. Also seem to have this great recall of all the scores and projects you've worked on and able to kind of remember the details about them somehow. I'm wondering which which of those there are that people might not think are your darlings or the ones that might not be so obvious and, and why that is. Well, I have one that I, you know, I love um, this tune, but the movie, you know, isn't I mean, it must happen to everybody, but you know, I, where I, 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 it's one of my favorite tunes, but the movie just, you know, not that great and uh, and, and not widely seen. Uh, the movie's called Fear. It stars uh, Mark Wahlberg and um, maybe it was Reese Witherspoon. It's <laughs> a period when I, uh, I think it's yeah, it's Reese Reese Witherspoon and Mark Wahlberg. I think you're yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. Anyway, Jamie Foley directed, and um, you know, it just didn't quite come together. You know how these things happen, but. The opening tune uh, that I wrote, the main theme, um, I still think is great. And uh, but just nobody's heard it. <laughs> and because it was recorded uh, with a union orchestra, it it would cost money to release it, right? You'd have to pay uh, new use fees. So 
Um, it's not like it's easy for it ever really to be heard. It was never released as a soundtrack. Um, I think the Brussels Philharmonic put out a compilation of stuff of mine a couple of years ago. They might have recorded that one. I'm not sure. But it's not easy to record either because it involves like it's taiko drums and symphony orchestra and synth and David Torn playing guitar. It's like it's just not easy to ever do again. But that version we recorded, I, I really am very fond of. speaks to what we were talking about earlier with samples because I've certainly found um, I'm revisiting this, a second season of a show the Loki that I did Oh um, great, I loved the first it was so, and the music was just so fantastic Oh thank you, that's very kind of you but um, you know I, I was lucky enough to find these Scandinavian folk instrument players and they did some some kind of, you know I'd, I'd give them a line on, on a synth uh you know i'd kind of sketch something out for them on the piano but then i'd say oh could you add this inflection or play it like this and i was just revisiting it and you know i've ended up using quite a lot of the things from season one again and because of the performance of it and you just think i they've it's just got such a kind of character in the way it's played and then you i've kind of expanded from it or whatever but that's the thing about um that i really love about that thing you were saying with finding a color for something Right, exactly. It just it it gives you something to bounce from that feels more unique than just you know doing something with a bog standard orchestral setup, I suppose. Yeah, no, that's right. And even if, for instance, in my experience of the equivalent of that was Fargo, where I you know I was I knew the music of the Hardanger fiddle, but I didn't know. I mean, I wanted to capture that feeling, but I um, but the actual instrument is really hard. You know, you know is not that easy to even find in New York and to find someone who could play it. Um, but I knew a, um, a classical violinist who was really into fiddle styles, Paul Peabody. Um, I think he was concert master maybe at City Opera or I forget, but he was a really good classical player, but he knew he could say, well, do you want it more, you know, Norwegian or more Swedish or, you know, more Danish. And, and, um, and I wrote little turns on the score, but I knew that he was going to do something better than anything that I wrote. Um, you know, I'll often do that right ornamentation, but with the hope that the players will have their own better ideas. And, and, um, and the way we ended up doing that one was we had a second violinist play the drone notes instead of having them just um, ringing uh, under the playable strings which was what happens on a hard anger so we kind of got that feeling of um of drone plus you know the melody and he pitched up his violin by a whole tone to make it a little more strident in tone anyway basically we faked it we got something that sounded like a hard anger but wasn't the actual instrument but could do things that you couldn't easily do on the instrument and um i did so much love uh you know learning about those uh those traditions
when I'm on a big job, and, and this is, you know, I think it's the same for all composers, you just get sucked into a vortex and you just realise, you know, you're, you're working for a deadline of a recording session or, or a dub and it's so all-consuming, or it, it is for me. I feel like I, I could, I, I've never really truly finished. Like, there's always more I could be tweaking or working on or mixing or, like... Um, and I do, I think it's really interesting to talk to composers about, like, how do you how do you switch off and engage with the character and and engage with the story but have a bit of distance from it as well and deal with with the life of being a composer <laughs> that's a that's a big subject i know that's right that is in a way the subject right if you if you want to do this for your life um you need to figure out a way to to do that and i have different uh, approaches to it i mean i um i have kids and my wife knew well, like how much my work, um, you know, sucks up my entire life. That's right; it takes everything that you'll, you know, let it take. So we, before we had kids, we had, you know, I had committed that I'll be there for every breakfast, I'll be there for every dinner, you know, be be there for the weekends, except when I can't be there for the weekends. But you know, try to make um, that commitment that you just have to. It's not, um, and you have to, and that's right. You neither side is going to be happy. Uh, the you know, there's always something you can tweak in your compositions. I find I the, only in my I might have done a hundred films by now. I think I've done one where I actually felt like it was really complete when we put it on the stands um, and recorded it. In every other case, I was working on it the night before, the morning of, yeah, I, always uh, trying to like give it more detail, give it more detail from the podium when I'm conducting. I mean, just like, you, it's never all done. Um, and uh, yeah, I would happily always give it more time, but <laughs> there, that's right. You also want to have a life, I think. Um, there've been times when I was starting out when I didn't really have any other life. It was really all about the composing, but it's tough. You have to accept that neither side is going to ever feel completely you know, fulfilled. Like that my family is always going to think, that um, I could have gone with them to something and instead I stayed home and worked. And and the uh, film is always going to be complaining, film or television, whatever the project is, they're always going to say, can we get this, you know, tweaked some more, rethought, whatever, we've re-edited. We've re uh, I know you're recording in 20 minutes, but can we, you know, that's the way it is. You have to live with the fact that neither side of this, the personal side or the, or the work side is ever going to be uh, exactly what you want it to be. And both sides are going to feel shortchanged. Personally, I think you have to say that two years down the road, no one's going to care that you shortchanged the, the film project a little. Your children, you know, this is, it's different. I think, you know, you can only shortchange humans so much without it becoming a, a real, you know, I've heard the phrase emotional capital, like you, you invest in it. And, uh, and if you stop investing in it and you don't, you know, uh, you end up like in debt and it's, it can may never, you know, I mean, I know so many film composers who are on their second or third marriage, pretty common. And, um, I'm not, but I know so many who are, and I totally understand because yeah, it's tough. I work at home. I always have. And that helps me. I can, it's, you know, it helps me to, let's say I work all night, I could still wander in there for breakfast, you know, and um, stuff like that. It's, that works for me. It, and I know for a lot of people it doesn't, but um, that helps me to, you know, keep the two things in some kind of balance. 
I noticed maybe after 20 or 30 years of doing films that, you know, music had been my avocation. It's what I'd always done for my mental health, for my pleasure. And without my really quite noticing it, it had become my vocation instead. And I had no avocation. I had no hobbies or anything else. And then I started working hard on having some other thing in my life that I could spend my time on because, you know, you get bad news, bad news on these projects. Sometimes some of they, you've been giving your all and then you get the phone call that, oh, sorry, we're replacing you with Natalie Holt. And uh, it's like, and... Uh, <laughs> I hope you've never had that phone call. <laughs> um, you know, but th those things happen. And if that was really all that you had uh, going on in your life and then suddenly it's gone, it's, um, it's really rough. But if you had some other thing that you did, it, does, it doesn't matter what it is, but some other place to go. Um, I think that is important. Uh, I think it's important to me, but I think it's honestly, I recommend it to every, everybody that they make sure they've got some other thing that they do, whether it's playing poker with friends or studying some going. I, I, at one point I was taking classes at Columbia and I just take one class a semester, but I, it was great to have homework and have some other thing to do other than um, you know, composing. This was something I loved learning about you when we did we did a panel together last year, and um, you revealed that well, we you you fight fires in your spare time. Is this correct? Like this is one of oh. your <laughs> humbling hobbies. I <laughs> uh, yeah, I um, I'm a volunteer firefighter in the little town I live in. That's right. Yes, that's right. So all that time I spend doing mockups, I could be out there fighting fires. Uh, it's. Uh, <laughs> A lot of fires in that town? No, no. there really aren't. Um, it's, it's, it sounds great to say you're a volunteer firefighter, but it doesn't happen very often. Um, we actually probably spend more time getting people out of car wrecks, which is another part of our, our remit. Um, but I have to say, honestly, since the pandemic, it's all been pretty quiet, which is good. When we get called, it's not good for anybody else, except you know, it's kind of fun for us, but it's not, not good news what people call the fire department. Do you find that you draw inspiration from unusual areas sometimes that you were not expecting to uh, ignite something in your composition, like maybe another art form, maybe a novel, maybe a, a dance routine, or something even like a practice? Did that, did that jog something in your creative process? Uh, I mean, I experience what you're talking about uh, quite often. If you go to a, um, go to a museum, go to a you know, some other type of performative art, reading a book, uh, you know, what, no matter what the medium is, uh, you know, I always think about it in terms of like, as a creator, even though I'm, I don't know anything about, I wouldn't have any a clue how to choreograph a dance or, or read a book or, or any of these things or write a book. I mean, I would, when I experience those, I think about what did the creator have in mind? How did they approach this? How, how did they conceptualize it? And, um, and what their process was. And then I inevitably think, hmm, well, I wonder if I could bring that to bear on you know, a piece of music. Uh, and yeah, all, all the time, I'm probably more likely to, you know, to think about creative process with a different medium, frankly, than 
than with music because I've just experienced music so much. Uh, it's harder for me to find novelty there, whereas it's easy to find novelty for me in uh, in other art forms. Um, and that novelty does you know, provoke curiosity, and um, and out of that, yeah, you know, come ideas. I, f- I feel that very strongly. <laughs> 